Reading, short and deep. Hi, I'm Jesse, and I'm Eric. And today we're reading short and deep, "Collapsing Cosmoses" by R. H. Barlow and H. P. Lovecraft. This is first published in a volume of a fanzine called Leaves 2, which I want to say is from 1938. Yeah, uh, winter 1938. Uh, I didn't expect that we could get a copy of this, but uh, Bobby Deary, who's a Lovecraft scholar, just so happened to mention it. uh, And I was telling Eric, yeah, we're probably going to be stuck with this. But, you know, never know. I went looking for the original and then. It popped up. So I have a very rough scan, uh, which I will put up. But we're going to read it from the later 1980 publication in Uncollected Prose and Poetry. Um, that is uh, Lovecraft's Uncollected Prose and Poetry, published by Necronomicon Press, which makes it a lot easier to read. Um, they also have tagged it uh, in a way that the original is not tagged, uh, as by Hammond Eggleston. <laughs> Um, and uh, it it doesn't say that on the original, but um, I will trust that that is true because I want it to be true. Hamon <laughs> Eggleston. <laughs> um, and it fits the story, which is uh, 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 an unfinished satire of what what do we want to call this, Eric? Space opera. <laughs> Yeah, sure. It, it, there are a lot of references to it, some of which are to what we would certainly call space opera. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, so I wanted to uh, just do some numbers before we get into it. Um, uh, and I'll also mention who R.H. Barlow is, because I don't think we've done anything by him. Um, uh, he He would grow up to become a... Uh, university professor uh, studying ant- uh, as an anthropologist um, in Mexico. Um, later uh, killed himself. Um, possibly, the theory goes, is because uh, his homosexuality was going to be exposed, and that was a bad thing um, by a student, in fact. Uh, I don't know uh, the details on that other than what I read uh, various times about him. Um, but, uh, he had a strange relationship with H.P. Lovecraft. That is, he wrote Lovecraft, um, when he was a young boy and, uh, and then Lovecraft came to visit him after an invitation, uh, to Florida. And when Lovecraft got there, he was surprised to find that, uh, this kid was a kid. (laughs) Like he was like, I think he was like 14 or something like that. And Lovecraft is like in his forties. <laughs> so uh, Lovecraft went, was born in, in 1890 and yeah. Barlow was born in 1918. Yeah. So it's 28 year difference. Between yes. Them. And Barlow. Uh, so at the time of the publication, according to the Barlow's um, magazine, which is leaves, um, this was, from 1935, he would have been 17, and Lovecraft would have been 45. Wow, huge, huge difference in their ages, and uh, and yet um, apparently they had quite a quite a bit of fun uh, blueberry picking. Um, Barlow's dad was uh, a military man, and uh, uh, he he was often 
World War I when Barlow was born. Lovecraft wanted to go to World War I, uh, but his mom uh, got him out of the, the uh, volunteer service that he tried to get into. And uh, so it, it, they, they really could be father and son in terms of age. You know, almost grandfather, but not quite. Uh, um, and and that's one of the things that um, if you read a lot of Lovecraft letters, he's all when it, whenever he's talking to anybody who's younger than him, um, unless they're like you know Robert E. Howard, who's you know barely, he's not that much younger. Um, he would always call himself Grandpa, <laughs> which is pretty funny, uh, sort of grandfatherly thing to do, considering he never had any kids of his own um, and, and died at 47 and died. Yeah. Very shortly after this came out. Um, so uh, this is a hilarious like concoction. <laughs> I don't know who did what, but I, I, I would guess that they took turns at it, which uh, I've seen done in, um, in what were called uh, uh, what is the term when you have a bunch of authors write one novel, each taking turn on a chapter? What's that called? I, I've heard things called a work by many hands, but I don't know of a single oh, noun for it. But there, there may be one. Yeah, there is. There's a novel called Naked Came the Manatee, uh, which is a Floridian author's um, taking turns. Naked Came the Manatee. No, Naked Came the Stranger, I think, is the is the earlier uh, book that does this and it's really quite delightful yeah there's a Lovecraft one too uh, in fact there might be two in which C.L. Moore and Robert E. Howard uh, and H.P. Lovecraft take turns writing chapters and then making it progressively worse for each subsequent person to try and make it all make sense anyways there's a special term for that um, and I think that's probably how this was composed so the term is uh, round robin, in which uh, each author t- writes a section or a chapter of a story, and then the next author has to pick up and continue the story using only what has come before as a guide. It's it's kind uh, so the name of the most famous one of these in science fiction is uh, the challenge from beyond, in which C. L. Moore, A. Merritt, uh, Robert E. Howard, uh, Frank Belknap Long, and I believe H. P. Lovecraft um, try to collaboratively write a novel by stymieing the next person by ending it on each chapter on a cliffhanger. <laughs> and so the first person has free reign. The second person has to deal with the first person's chapter. The third person has to deal with both of the previous chapters. And the last person is like, ah, oh, I give up. <laughs> That's usually how it works out. Um, right. And, and hence the end of this um, dot, 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 or unfinished. But, you know, there's another way to look at this, um, this composition process. And I think it's worth considering as we think about how this works. Naked Came the Stranger was, as I recall, done. I mean, it has Penelope Ash, I think, is the, the name of the putative author. But it's really something like 26 reporters or writers from Newsweek mm-hmm. magazine. Uh, who in pairs took subsequent chapters, and uh, the this the, there's a uh, a sort of an overall sketch of what's going to happen. There's there's a woman who decides that she needs to have sexual experience in order to have this and that happen to her, her psychological development, and 
basically each chapter is another episode of her um, sexual adventures. And she's described, of course, in such ways as to make her, in a standard form, sexually appealing. The thing is, um, these authors don't care at all for what came before Mm -hmm. because the whole thing is supposed to be playful. So she becomes lean in one and redheaded and she (laughs) then is busty and brunette in the next chapter i mean Mm -hmm. she just she 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 changes physically but the overall story arc is what everybody has to keep to and it's a very funny novel Mm -hmm. um so i i don't think that uh necessarily this idea of uh what you're calling a round robin requires that each author try to stump the subsequent author. They may just be playing with the, oh, it's the, definitely uh, playing. with each other and so on. It's definitely playing, but they, they will have to read what was written before and then, and then react to it. And sometimes the and, reaction is to say, all that has come before was nonsense. <laughs> indeed. And this is, but this is sufficiently short that one can imagine that it didn't have that same time separation between the writing of one hand and the writing of another oh, hand. Oh, I agree. And th- there is, as you know, from the uh, the Lovecraft Society webpage, they have assigned uh, who wrote what. Uh, oh, okay. Right or wrong. That's cool. And uh, basically, there there's one sentence in the middle, but basically they say that uh, Lovecraft wrote the first paragraph. He wrote one line. It comes out in the middle. And then um, he wrote the last paragraph. And I don't know how they determine this, um, but these are people who really do work through Lovecraft's archives Mm -hmm. a lot. Um, It's a thought. But if that's the case, um, we really don't have – we don't have enough distance to suppose that they – were out of communication with each other, Barlow and. Oh, Lovecraft. I think they were in the same room, <laughs> the typewriter, <laughs> or what, or or at the same um, typewriter, huh? yeah, or at the right. you know same piece of paper. Um, uh, uh, but no matter who you know what wrote what section, I'm always going to hope that Hammond Eggleston is out there still working on the next chapter. Ah, yes. Now, the one of the things that we need to know about in, in this is that. Uh, some of the writing, some of the that is the physical writing, is done in such a way that if you read it with your eyes, you you I mean the very beginning of it begins with D A M capital capital D A M capital B O R glued each of his six eyes to the lenses of the cosmoscope. And if you just read it with your eyes, it's D-A-M-B-O-R, clearly the name of some alien, because, mm-hmm. you know, this is collapsing cosmosis. It is alien to us. But if you read it with your ear, it's damn bore. Yep. <laughs> and uh, I think it's – so if if you'd like me to read this story, and I certainly will, it's quite short, um, I'll, tr- I'll try to enunciate the names in such a way that – you know, it's clear that we're supposed to have our eyes see these as standard alien filter garb that you get yep. in pulp pulp fiction, and uh, but our ears are supposed to see that th- there is a an underlying critique of pulp fiction. Mm-hmm. Does that sound right? Please. Okay. Shall we read? Yes. Thank you. 
Collapsing Cosmoses by Hammond Eggleston. Dam Bohr glued each of his six eyes to the lenses of the cosmoscope. His nasal tentacles were orange with fear, and his antennae buzzed hoarsely as he dictated his report to the operator behind him. It has come, he cried. That blur in the ether can be nothing less than a fleet from outside the space-time continuum we know. Nothing like this has ever appeared before. It must be an enemy. Give the alarm to the intercosmic chamber of commerce. There's no time to lose. At this rate, they'll be upon us in less than six centuries. Hack knee must have a chance to get the fleet in action at once. I glanced up from the Windy City grab bag, which had beguiled my inactive peacetime days in the supergalactic patrol. The handsome young vegetable, with whom I shared my bowl of caterpillar custard since earliest infancy and with whom I had been thrown out of every joint in the interdimensional city of Castor Ya, had really a worried look upon his lavender face. After he had given the alarm, we jumped on our ether bikes and hastened across to the outer planet on which the chamber held its meetings. Within the great council chamber, which measured 28 square feet with quite a high ceiling, were gathered delegates from all the 37 galaxies of our immediate universe. All stuff president of the chamber and representative of the milliner's Soviet, raised his eyeless snout with dignity and prepared to address the assembled multitude. He was a highly developed protozoan organism from Novkas and spoke by emitting alternate waves of heat and cold. Gentlemen, he radiated, a terrible peril has come upon us, which I feel I must bring to your attention. Everybody applauded riotously as a wave of excitement rippled through the variegated audience. Those who were handless slithered their tentacles together. He continued, Hackney, crawl upon the dais. There was a thunderous silence during which a faint prompting was heard from the dizzy summit of the platform. Hackney, the yellow-furred and valorous commander of our ranks through numerous installments, ascended to the towering peak inches above the floor. My friends, he began with an eloquent scraping of his posterior limbs, these treasured walls and pillars shall not mourn on my account. At this point, one of his numerous relatives cheered. Well, do I remember when old stuff interrupted him? You have anticipated my thoughts and orders. Go forth and win for dear old intercosmic. Two paragraphs later, found us soaring out past innumerable stars toward where a faint blur half a million light years long marked the presence of the hated enemy whom we had not seen. What monsters of malformed grotesqueness seethed out there among the moons of infinity, we really didn't know. But there was a malign menace in the glow that steadily increased until it spanned the entire heavens. Very soon we made out separate objects in the blur. Before all my horror-stricken vision areas, there spread an endless array of scissor-shaped spaceships of totally unfamiliar form. 
Then, from the direction of the enemy, there came a terrifying sound, which I soon recognized as a hail and a challenge. An answering thrill crept through me as I met with uplifted antennae this threat of battle with a monstrous intrusion upon our fair system from unknown outside abysses at the sound, which was something like that of a rusty sewing machine, only more horrible Hackney, too, raised his snout in defiance, radiating a masterful order to the captains of the fleet. Instantly, the huge spaceship swung into battle formation with only a hundred or two of them, many light years out of line. Dot, 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 dot. Yep. <laughs> so, um, uh, in the original, it says unfinished. In uh, the one we're reading it from, it just has the dot, 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 dot. Um, <laughs> it didn't occur to me until a second reading um, why the spaceships were scissor-shaped. <laughs> <laughs> dot, 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 dot. Very good, uh, but, but it gets cut off, doesn't it, this story? Um, and, uh, no, I don't think it does. Well, that's I, I, I think... I think that the dot, dot, dot is a reference to the narrative of Arthur Gordon Pym. Oh, tell me. Well, at the end of that putative novel by Edgar Allan Poe, remember, um, the, the title character has stowed away on a whaling ship and he is on his way. Um, he has no choice in it. The, the ship is taking him into the, the, the Antarctic ocean. And as he, continues the ship is and he's now been cast away at the very end and he's in a raft and he has no choice the currents are dragging him and the, the sea is getting hotter and hotter as mm -hmm. it was getting colder but then it's getting hotter and hotter then he hears an enormous cataract and steam is rising as if he's going to fall over somehow into a huge maelstrom at the bottom of the earth and 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 then editor's note yep. as everyone knows Arthur Pym was, you know, died in the conflagration of his house, having delivered just this much of the manuscript to me. So, and clearly, what Poe is doing there, he is making fun of the form of adventure story mm -hmm. because it's obvious that the title character cannot have written his own story since he must have died. It's set up that he could not possibly have lived. But the editorial note tells us that he, in fact, did live, wrote the story, but only got this far before he then died. Mm. So those dot, dot, dots are unfinished in the sense that the manuscript is unfinished, but not unfinished in the sense that the story is unfinished, mm. because the whole point of the story is to show us how we are sucked in and about to lose ourselves into that kind of a maelstrom. Now, I think you're very clever to recognize the scissor-shaped um, of those those spaceships because, in fact, they are the tool in the hands of Hammond Eggleston to, um, to stop this story at such a point that it places it within the, uh, the history of fantastic fiction. And as you know, Poe is probably the single greatest influence on, Love, on Lovecraft. Yeah. And if the Lovecraft Society is right, it is the last paragraph, as well as the first, 
that Lovecraft himself contributed to this story. Mm. So I think that the phrase unfinished is, in fact, just like the editorial note at the end of the narrative of Arthur Gordon Pym. It's put there in order to have us understand that it must be false. Yes. Um, um, my favorite line, and there's so many great lines in here, um, two, two, <laughs> two that stand out besides the uh, scissors-shaped spaceships of editors <laughs> are, um, are um, uh, the line here. Hackney, the yellow-furred and valorous uh, commander of our ranks through numerous installments... <laughs> right. Uh, and then um go forth and win for dear old intracosmic new paragraph two paragraphs later found us soaring out past innumerable. <laughs> so this is um uh I I I think this is a specifically aimed uh I would say it's specifically aimed at at uh, e. e. Doc Smith or the stuff that E.E. Oh, e. Doc Smith is famous for. Absolutely. Absolutely. The Grey Lensman, mm-hmm. you know, right? Spaceships, the, uh, the right. vast civilizations in conflict with each other, inventing new technologies. Uh, <laughs> yep. We get Absolutely. this uh, from our narrator uh, who comes in in the first, uh, second paragraph. I glanced up from the Windy City grab bag, which, uh, what's this word? Something my, uh, I'm reading from the original, beguiled my inactive peacetime days in this super galactic patrol. <laughs> right. So he's on and a break. Galactic, right. And the galactic patrol, after all, is is uh, one of the uh, the stories, one of the series by uh, by Smith. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, uh, it begins in September 1937, though. So um, since this was written in 35. They're they're in the same neighborhood. They're using the same words. But in 1934, Triplanetary—that's the one I was thinking published. mostly of. Yeah, exactly. And it was a and huge was hit, right? Like enormous, enormous. It's enormous. um, it's it's essentially for people who have not read any E.E. Uh, e. Doc Smith. It's essentially it's like a combination of Star Wars and Star Trek. You've got these deflector screens and transporter beams and repulsor beams and all that stuff and it's always you know clash of civilization intergalactic civilizations and from what i've read um any problems that are happening you know some new technology ray the engineer on the ship is like he's working on an invention that'll fix that like within the space of a couple of pages and he does right, right. so it's and- and Kim Kinison, you know, the gray lensman himself, um, has that ring, which he is able to use to concentrate power right. and make things happen. I mean, and this is this is what begins. This this is the the archetype for space opera. Yes. And it it runs uh, in amazing stories from January through April, four issues in 1934. So everybody's reading it. Everybody knows about it. And Hammond Eggleston decides, I think you're quite right. Uh, this that's that's what they are most obviously parodying <laughs> but i do think that the poe reference is, is oh, still there i agree with you i think yeah i didn't see i didn't see that of course but i have read uh that novel and it is a uh, it, it itself was serialized um and uh it it has such a s- unsatisfactory ending that even jules verne wrote a sequel to it 
he he was like, yes, I'm frustrated by this wonderful only novel by Edgar Allan Poe, a man who influenced pretty much everybody who <laughs> lives on the earth, even if they don't know about it. Um, yes. What's so interesting about this is um, every time, every time we go in for one of these, I guess these these are your these are your thing, the transformed lang- language, right? So Dan yeah. Gore glued each of his six eyes to the lenses of the cosmoscope. His nasal tentacles were orange with fear. <laughs> well, right. you know, later on... Whatever we, the heck. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. Le- well, later on, we have a, uh, a guy who, who emits uh, alternating heat and cold uh, to give his speech. and I love it. <laughs> and then in the galactic... Uh, it's inter- the intercosmic chamber of commerce... <laughs> <laughs> in the inter right. uh, in the in the vast chambers of the inter uh cosmic chamber of commerce, commerce which is a massive 28 square feet <laughs> right <laughs> these are like silkworms <laughs> these these are really funny but i think i i, I don't know if it was intentional or not. I mean, there's lots of little satires going mm-hmm. along, right? I mean, yes, they're, they're like silkworms, but, you know, when, when they must, since we've never seen it before, they must be enemies. I mean, that's clearly a critique of the entire space opera genre. Mm-hmm. You know, if we haven't seen them before, they must be enemies. Yeah. Um, but, and when we have enemies, do we go to the great council of the worlds, of the galaxies? No, we go to the Great Council of the Super, of the Chamber of Commerce, mm-hmm. right? So now one might say, oh, that's just random. But it's not random no. because there's a representation, there's a representative at the chamber from the milliner's Soviet, Soviet. Yeah. right? It's not the steel worker's Soviet. It's not the coal miner's Soviet. It's got nothing to do with organizing the necessities of an industrialized world. It's got to do with hat making. Right. So there's a critique here of that the Chamber of Commerce has taken over the role one would expect of a government to defend its po- its population. And it is comprised of the most trivial kinds. And I'm not trying to put down hat makers, but, you know, <laughs> in war, we need helmets, not, you know, not hats, not fedoras. We've got a, a critique here of the kinds of things that get absorbed into space opera to, that suggests, you know, there is something really significant in the world and space opera is missing it. I, I think that's important. I think, if I may, I think two other things uh, seem to me to be true here that um, are not just funny. Um, one of them is the title Mm. why is it called collapsing cosmoses what are the cosmoses and i think we see that the cosmos in our inability or at least my inability you may you may enlighten me jesse our inability to know who i is Mm. in the second paragraph i glanced up from the Windy City Grab Bag, the name of presumably a pulp magazine, which had beguiled my inactive peacetime. Who is I? And there is no actual narrator who is I. That mm. is the narrator that begins with Dan Borglud is each of his six eyes, etc. That's not I. No. Nope. But the I 
is is somehow someone who seems to be reading the story, who sees things in installments. In other words, there is there are two different ontologies here. There's the ontology of stories that are printed in the Windy City grab bag, and there's the ontology of the story that we are reading with Dan Bohr and so on. But the story of Dan Bohr and so on is intermittently in the story published in Windy City Grab Bag mm-hmm. and being read by I, who is somehow outside of the Windy Grid, the Windy City Grab Bag. So I is simultaneously inside the the pulp fiction within the pulp fiction and outside the pulp fiction within the pulp fiction. In other words, I think that the two worlds uh, that are collapsing together mm. are the worlds of fiction making. Mm-hmm. That the collapsing cosmos is, is a demonstration of how it is that fiction can play with the consciousness of the reader to ricochet that reader in and out and in and out until eventually you can't tell which one you're in at all. Mm -hmm. The inability to nail down I is in fact the collapsing cosmos. So as a philosophical story intended to demonstrate the arbitrariness of fictional ontology, I think this thing is actually kind of brilliant. It's and that's why it ends <laughs> right in the middle of the action. It's because exactly. these things can't go on. <laughs> no, they can't, but they can but they can work for us. We can think them through and they've given us the possibility. Mm-hmm. So it's very good. It is. Now let me suggest a second one. Um this is this is more of a reach, I think, but I will offer it to you, Jesse, to think about it. We have clearly suggestive names, Dam Bohr, yep. right? Hackney. Yep. And if we are thinking of the industrial world as having taken over too much too often, then old stuff, you know, that mm. same old stuff mm. is the president of the Chamber of, uh, of Commerce, the mm. Intergalactic Chamber of Commerce. So the names matter. Now... In this world in which names matter, where do they meet? They meet in an intradimensional city, a city within the dimensions. See, going right back to the mm-hmm. notion of collapsed cosmoi, cosmosis. Um, cosmoi is the actual Greek plural. And the city is called Castoria or Castoria. But because it's hyphenated, it's Castor already. Castor, yeah. Now, if I'm looking up in the sky, this is after all a space opera, mm. I know that Castor is up there because Castor and Pollux make the very well-known um, zodiacal uh, constellation known as the Gemini, known as Gemini. Mm-hmm. It's the twins, Castor and Pollux. Mm-hmm. The story of Castor and Pollux is one of a very, very strange phenomenon. It's, they are half-twins. That is, they are twins. They're born at the same time um, from the same womb. Leda is the, their mother. One of them is fathered by Zeus, is the swan, and the other by the king of Sparta. So one of them, Castor, is uh, mortal, and the other, Pollux, is immortal. They are they're, they're more than, than siblings, 
but not quite twins. They are sort of interdimensional in their own way. Mm. And the story of Castor and Pollux is one of extraordinary love. So much so that Pollux, whose father is God, Zeus, begs to share his immortality with Castor. And it's granted, and hence they are raised to the heavens, and we see the constellation of Gemini. That's a very interesting relationship, right? Mm -hmm. They are twins, and yet they don't have the same mother and father. Mm -hmm. They love each other completely, and yet they're not lovers. And going back to what you were telling us biographically when we began this conversation, Jesse— I can't help, since you know the names of the constellations are well-known, and uh, Lovecraft certainly knows all these things, um, we have here with Barlow and Lovecraft what is clearly an extraordinary affection, oh, yeah. which at first was thought to be between peers, mm-hmm. and later was found to be something else, and I can't help but wonder if there is something unstated about this affection, which suggests that this naming of the city as Castor, yeah, which is in a part of the story, presumably written by Barlow, mm-hmm. is at least an unconscious recognition of his homosexual attraction to H.P. Lovecraft, himself not a very heterosexual person, um, and fits entirely with his own suicide just a handful of years later. Yeah, it, it's you don't write a story like this with your enemy. You write it with your bestie, and they their relationship was, as far as we can tell, completely non-sexual. It was uh, admirer and admiree, and fellow admirer, and fellow admirer. Um, Barlow eventually um, is, uh, when Lovecraft's on his deathbed, assigns him as literary executor. It later turns out that August Derleth swoops in and bad, badmouths uh, Barlow, and that doesn't really happen. But a lot of the texts that we have by Lovecraft are typewritten up by uh, Barlow, and he is largely responsible for the preservation of many of what these unpublished works, posthumously published works, he really got him. And this is, this is the thing that happens, Eric. Somewhere out there on the internet, somewhere out there in the world, you find a person who you really get and who really gets you. And in this case, he traveled down to Florida and spent time with this kid, turns out to be a kid, whose you know parents are like, okay, you want to hang out with a, an old guy? That's okay, I guess, right? Um, And so this story is one of definitely of of love and appreciation and affection. And given Barlow's own feelings, apparently, about what it would mean to actually reveal that explicitly, when he writes something like this, which seems just to be a, uh, a joke about pulp publication. He's not only written a critique of the fiction and the world that it arises from, but a philosophical treatment mm. 
and something else for which there's always more to say. Thanks very much for listening. And remember, you can always freely access the materials discussed on these podcasts by going to sffaudio.com and clicking on the link for Reading Short and Deep. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash sffaudio.